This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today my guest is Dr. Keith Latham, who's an associate professor in the Department of Mathematics Education at Brigham Young University. Keith, thanks so much for being here. I'm happy to be here, Sam. We're going to be talking about Keith's article in the Journal of Mathematical Behavior entitled The Case of the Case of Benny, Elucidating the Influence of a Landmark Study in Mathematics Education. So a lot of you might be familiar with the case of Benny. We're going to get to dig into that quite a bit. But Keith, before we get to Benny, um, let's just back up here to the case of Keith Latham. So where was it that you did your graduate studies, and uh, what did you focus on for your dissertation? Great. So after I did a master's degree in mathematics at Utah State University, I went to the University of Georgia. That's where I did my Ph.D., my advisor was Tom Cooney. In, in part, building off of the work that he'd done on beliefs, I also studied uh, beliefs. My dissertation study was on um, pre-service teachers' beliefs about technology and teaching and learning mathematics. Mm-hmm. So Benny is a little bit different than that, although I'm sure related in a lot of ways, especially with beliefs and things like that. Right. So here... You, in this article, you really dig deeply into the case of Benny. Um, and Benny is, is something that a lot of people in math education are probably familiar with, but maybe not everybody. So first of all, we'll back up and we'll just talk about Benny a little bit. For me, I was introduced to Benny in my very first graduate-level uh, doctoral class in mathematics education. And a lot of people might know Benny from the Classics in Math Education volume that was published by NCTM. Yep. Um, but could you help us out just with a quick nutshell of Benny for people who maybe haven't read it or aren't familiar with who Benny is? You bet. So the, uh, first of all, I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read The Case of Benny, you pause and go read it and, and, <laughs> and then continue on. I mean, you, you really ought to um, read that case. It, it's fascinating, and I think it's foundational for anybody who's engaging in, in mathematics teaching and learning and also in doing research in mathematics, mm-hmm. mathematics teaching and learning, that is. So basically, the case of Benny is a case study of a sixth grade student. Stanley Erlanger went into um, Benny's classroom, and Benny's a pseudonym for the student, and um, went into his classroom and observed how he was engaging in um, his mathematics studies in that classroom. And then Erlanger did uh, interviews with Benny to try to understand um, what was going on. The reason that he chose to do interviews with Benny is because he in his observations, realized that there were two kind of interesting things going on with Benny. Benny was was doing pretty well. It, the, the curriculum that he was using was one where you worked individually through through workbooks, and then as soon as you'd work through the, the materials, you went up and took a quiz to see if you'd mastered the material. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the 1970s equivalent of like online-based individual sort of learning modules, I would say. Yes, definitely. And now we've moved them online where a student sits at a computer, they go through these modules, they take a test. If they pass, then they move on to the next module, that kind of thing. That's exactly right. It was meant to be individualized, to be very prescribed according to um, specific learning objectives, and broken down very, very procedurally into each of the individual components one might need to understand in order to carry out a particular procedure. Mm-hmm. So Benny was making pretty good progress. He was he was um, he might not pass the quizzes on the first time, but he was he would quickly 
um, get through the material and pass the quizzes and move on. And so he was doing quite well in the class. But as, as Earl Winger observed him, he realized that he was doing some really kind of unexpected things with the mathematics, things that were incorrect in terms of the way he was he was carrying out the mathematics. And so he was fascinated by this situation and wanted to understand more about Benny's particular situation. Mm-hmm. Um, going into this study, it was all along it was Erlwinger's intention to look at the mathematical behavior of students, to get inside their heads and figure out how they're making sense of mathematics and how they're viewing mathematics and what it means to do mathematics. So his, his intention was to look at what he, what he termed students' mathematical conception which is like I, what I just said. Basically, the ways they see mathematics, the nature of mathematics, and mm-hmm. uh, you know what, just what it is for them. Yeah. And so the case of Benny basically um, describes Benny's situation. And in a nutshell, there, there's much more detail in both in the published article that focuses on Benny, as well as the other kind of incarnations of the case of Benny that exist in Erlinger's dissertation. The case of Benny is just one of six cases in in his dissertation. Okay. But, but basically what we find out is that Benny was very much trying to please the, the teacher and the teaching materials by getting the correct answers, and he, he developed his own kind of methods and ways of reconciling the fact that sometimes when he worked a problem, he would get a different answer than what the answer key had. And his way of reconciling that was, was to overgeneralize the, the idea that we have multiple representations for numbers. So, I mean, he would use examples like, well, you know, two-fourths is equal to one-half, and even though they don't look the same, they're really the same. And so he used that in order to justify when he got an answer that wasn't actually equivalent to the answer key. He would say, Mm -hmm. oh, well, they're just looking for it in a different form. Mm -hmm. So he believed that he was still right. And so he could reconcile these contradictions in a way that wasn't mathematically correct, but that you can see was kind of connected to a mathematical idea of equivalence. Yeah, And so he would just then, he would revise what he was doing slightly in order to get that particular type of problem correct in the way that the answer key wanted the answer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. So that's really the underlying story of Benny, is how he managed to to create this mathematical world that didn't match up with the mathematics, really, that was intended by the curriculum or by his teacher. Yeah, and he also could progress through to the next module and continue on where he's looking from the surface like, oh, he's being successful, he's moving through these things. But because he's holding these contradictions in his whole image of what's going on, he actually doesn't, just to put it bluntly, he doesn't understand very much mathematics correctly or completely, but he is progressing through successfully That's because right. he's he's willing to just have it, you know, oh, here's how I did it, it's different in the answer key, but they're both right, I'm just going to keep going so he's kind of progressing through in a, with you know misconceptions and errors and things and not really full conceptual understandings. Yeah, yeah. So in many ways he viewed his experience with the curriculum as a particular kind of game and he was he was winning the game. It just mm-hmm. wasn't the game right. that was intended. Right, right. So in this article you take the case of Benny and it's had a lot of influence in the field of mathematics education. And you analyze how it has showed up in the field of education. Before we get there, I'm curious how the case of Benny first showed up for you. Where were you first exposed to it? Yeah, so um, I I think my experience was similar to yours. One of my first uh, graduate courses in math education at the University of Georgia, we read the case of Benny in that class. And 
it, it was a class where we're being introduced to, to, to literature in, in mathematics education. And I still remember, first of all, reading the article and thinking, wow, this is exactly the kind of thing that, that research in math ed should do. Like, I, I remember thinking, that's the kind of stuff that I want to do. I want to better understand the way the students think about mathematics. And there were also um, lots of implications for teaching. And so the combination in the paper of, of looking both at student learning and at teaching was really fascinating to me. So the second thing that I noticed when I was reading through that case of Benny is Erlwinger managed to to pull enough information from Benny in order to kind of figure out the rules that he'd come up with to try to get um, his answers. So you know, I, you know, I mentioned that that he had some ways of getting answers that just didn't jive with what we um, what was intended, that weren't really correct mathematically. But but he managed to figure out what he would do, so he would know how Benny would would perform on a given problem. He knew the kind of error he would make. Mm -hmm. And I was also fascinated by that because you could go through and see particular subsets of problems, for example, where Benny's strategy would work. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. then and then, of course, a majority of situations where it wouldn't. And so there was something right. in inherently mathematical about the analysis that I also found really compelling. Hmm. In the Journal of Math Behavior article, you have the case of the case of Benny. And here, what you actually do is you, you take this you know landmark study from the 70s, and now you're going to trace how it's been cited, how it's been used, what its influence has been in the mathematics education literature. So this is a different kind of article than we're used to seeing, um, but a really interesting, fascinating one. I was wondering if you could just let us in on how did you go through that process? What was your method for <laughs> this kind of study where you're studying the influence of another study? Yeah, so, yeah, and in part you might be wondering, why would you even think to do such a thing? Because so, it's interesting and fascinating, that's why. That's right, because <laughs> we can, right? So one of the great things about this job is we, we get paid to be creative and just explore and learn, so it's, it's a wonderful thing. So over the years, I've always been fascinated by the way that we, that we cite the work of others. I think it's such an interesting aspect of academia and, and the kind of the genre of writing. And when Google Scholar came along and search engines began to allow us to to basically to search backwards, right? To be able to look at where things are being cited. Mm -hmm. It started to open up these new possibilities. And, and I, uh, in a graduate seminar that I teach, I would often have students use that search engine in order to find a couple of places where somebody had cited the article that we were reading. Mm -hmm. and, and then look to see how they were citing it. And in doing so, it you know, gave us um, some things to talk about, some starting points for discussing the article. And also, it is a chance to learn a little bit about the writing genre. So there's kind of a natural extension from there as I started thinking, you know, this resource, being able to search backwards for a particular article would give us the ability to actually track how people are using the article. And then, so I got this idea of maybe I should do that for some article. And a natural one to do it for it seemed to be the case of Benny because I, I saw it as so kind of fundamental. And when I went into Google Scholar and I looked at a number of different articles, the case of Benny actually isn't anywhere near the most cited in, in the math ed literature. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting, that it isn't by any stretch the most cited, and yet many people talk about it as being so influential, at least that had been my experience, mm -hmm. that I thought, oh, maybe this is a perfect one to choose for that very reason. That's a, um, 
and also it, it would be manageable. The number of right, yeah, yeah, the sources right would would be such that it might be reasonable to actually try to track them all down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, how did you find the articles that you were going to look at? And then, when you had an article, what did you actually? code for, or how did you then make sense of what was in those articles? Yeah, so so we used Google Scholar as the primary source, and okay. basically, you know, search for the case of Benny in Google Scholar, it brings up the case of Benny, and it shows cited in, and you can click on that, and it and it gives you a huge list of, of articles that have cited Benny, mm-hmm. and so we used that as the basis. We located each one of those articles verified that they didn't indeed cite the case of Benny. So, for example, some people, sometimes Earl Winger's um, 19, Earl Winger 1973 ended up in the references but wasn't actually cited in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you know, right. But made sure that they, it actually was one and, and, and got a copy of it. Then there were a few other things that we did in, uh, to try to see how good Google Scholar was at its job. Mm-hmm. It turns mm-hmm. out it's really good. But we, we looked at through some journal websites, like we went to the Journal of Mathematical Behaviors website and searched for the case of Benny there to see if there were any articles in that journal itself that mm-hmm. that maybe we were missing, and um, went to Eric database and some other places just to see. And we found a few right. here and there, but not mm-hmm. many more. It, Google Scholar really did a, a, a great job of capturing. Mm-hmm. So then, once we had you know an article where they'd cited Benny, then we 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 looked through the article to find any place where they cited. Erwanger, and then we we treated that location um, as a citation instance, and then we we read over what they had said, and we asked ourselves a couple of questions. First of all, we asked, "What's the point that they seem to be making?" Mm-hmm. And sometimes we would word that as, "What's the claim that they're making?" And then we would ask, "Okay, so how how are they using Benny to support the claim that they're making?" Okay. And, or another way of putting it, would, we would say, so they're appealing to Benny for some reason. What seems to be the reason? How is Benny supporting whatever it is that they're saying? Okay. And at that stage, it wasn't an analysis of whether Benny actually did support what they were saying. Right, right. It's really just a question of how they were using it. Yeah, I think, and I think that makes sense. It's like, how has this been picked up and used in the field? It's not really a judgment of whether that's a correct use of Benny or the most valid use of Benny. It's just, how is it being used? That, that's right. Then, because we started to notice a lot of times the use seemed a little bit off, <laughs> we also started to make note of places where it seemed like they were using Benny, but maybe not quite as they should. So we also took note of that, and that's not reported in this paper, but we also were were analyzing that. My guest is Keith Latham from Brigham Young University. We're talking about his uh, study, The Case of the Case of Benny from JMB. So now then the next natural question is, uh, what were the different ways that you saw Benny being cited or being used in the field of mathematics education? Yeah, so, so far and away the most common reason for citing the case of Benny is wanting to make a point about students' conceptions of mathematics. And what's interesting is that Erwinger defined conception as um, both their knowledge and beliefs about mathematics. And so people can use the case of Benny to support kind of the importance of understanding that whole collection <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of things. So you, you have people citing Benny to support statements about knowing how students think about mathematics and knowing their their understandings, their particular ways of doing it. 
uh, doing mathematics. And then you also have people citing Benny in order to support their work in looking at students' beliefs about mathematics, what it means mm. to learn mathematics, the, the nature of mathematics, things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's by far the biggest collection of, uh, of reasons is related to, to that. And, and when I say that their purpose is related, what, what, there are lots of different ways, of course, so, um, that you could, you could cite Benny to support you when you're studying student conceptions. So you might cite Benny as an example of people who have found insights into students' understanding, and then because you want to say, look, I'm not the first person who's done this. <laughs> I'm doing something that's in a similar vein to, to other work. So that would mm-hmm. be one example. Or they would appeal to particular conceptions that Erwinger uncovered for Benny, and they would want to be making connections between the conceptions that they maybe have uncovered in the students that they're, they're studying. Right. So connections yeah, make a, a little link there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other, other ways it was used. So the, the second most common reason that people cited the case of Benny was, was related to this phenomenon that Benny was making progress um, despite not understanding the mathematics the way the curriculum wanted him to. And so I, basically I captured that idea by saying people are basically making the claim and citing Benny to support it that correct answers don't necessarily imply understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of how I cited it at the beginning here. When, yeah, <laughs> when I right. added in my little thought, I was kind of almost in that category. Yeah, and so that's a very, that's a very common reason um, to, to cite the case of Benny. That, that phenomenon. And, and it's actually related to, to the third most common reason, which was really that, that people cite Benny in order to point out or to support claims about the limitations of behavior style curricula. The, the, these curricula that try to break down uh, student understanding into just observing behavior and seeing whether they're able to carry out those behaviors are really missing um, a lot of the underlying understanding that, that needs to be evaluated get students where we want them to be. So those are pretty common purposes. Now, one thing that I found quite interesting is that uh, another common purpose for citing the case of Benny was actually to cite it as an example of quality, qualitative research. So a lot of of times people weren't citing the case of Benny because of his findings, but were citing the case of Benny because it was viewed as exemplary in terms of the, the type of research. Hmm. Yeah, like a a case that's very compelling and that makes a difference. It it's a case that responds to important issues in the field. Yes, exactly. So it's this example of why um, case study methodology might be useful and valuable and legitimate because it illustrates um, in so many ways the, the qualities that we expect in that kind of research. Mm-hmm. The fifth one that um, that we identified it was kind of big enough to to be of note was this idea that um, students that students in a classroom are always making sense of their environment. That that's just a natural aspect of, of learning and that we need to treat them as sense makers. So when we see, so th- this idea would be that when we, when we see students doing particular things, it's not like we just need to target their behavior and get them to stop doing one thing and start doing another, but we need to really understand why they're doing the thing they're doing. So you know, Benny, so Erlinger's point was that this wasn't, in a sense, it wasn't Benny's fault that Benny was thinking this way. He was simply taking his experiences and making sense of them. Mm-hmm. So the, the environment 
that he was in, in, in many ways, contributed to to where he found himself in terms of his mathematical understanding. And so the argument would be that we might want to attend to the environment to try to make, I guess one way of saying it is we, we want to make the experiences that our students have worth making sense of. So I'm just curious on your thoughts as you've you know thought about Benny a lot and seen how people are using Benny. Have you been able to identify what it is about the case of Benny or about Earl Wanger's work that has led to it having this large impact and multifaceted impact over the decades? Well, you know, I have a couple thoughts on that. One, one idea really comes from the introduction that Michael Shaughnessy puts in that classics book that you mentioned earlier, Benny's mm-hmm. classics in research. Um, and he points out um, that he was a graduate student at the time when this paper came out, and they were blown away by it. Like, at the time, there were some big issues at play, and in particular, there was this issue of behaviorist curricula. That was a big deal at the time, mm-hmm. and um, and people in math, max education were had many doubts about it. <laughs> and um, and so this, this article just brought out this idea that, wow, look, here's something that will allow us to kind of articulate some of the concerns that we've had. Mm-hmm. And so it came out of very, it was very timely in that sense. And, and it then, kind of filled a, it's kind of like what a lot of people wanted, right? They probably wanted some evidence and this story to hold up to help voice their critiques. That's right. There was a sen- there was a general sense that these, this was a kind of issue with this kind of curricula. And this, that's right, this provided some evidence to, to back up those claims. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing that at the time was that this was a poignant example of qualitative research, and qualitative research was not that common yet. And it, it so it was also, if you look at a lot of the research that's published in at, around this same time, in the early 70s, so much of it is relying on quantifying situations. And, um, and it, it just, that methodology just didn't allow to answer certain questions. And this methodology allowed Erlinger to answer questions that many people at the time were saying, yeah, we need to be asking these questions. And this is a methodology that will allow us to try to answer them. So I think that the methodology itself and showing how the, the quality of results that you can get with these kinds of qualitative methods was also really striking at the time. So it, it has to do with the timeliness, I think, of Benny. And that's one of the points that... that um, Shaughnessy makes in that preface, um, mm-hmm. in that introduction. But the other thing I would point out is I think the other reason is it, as in this analysis in revealing these primary reasons why people cite the case of Benny, I realized that when you look across all of these reasons, this really captures kind of the heart and soul of research in mathematics education. These are many of the big ideas. So when you have many of the big ideas in mathematics education research being um, addressed in one particular article. I think that's another reason why it, it gained so much traction. Mm-hmm. And putting all this time and energy into looking at the influence of Benny through the literature and through the decades, what would you say you feel is like is a new insight that you've come to because of the work that you've gone through and then that you can kind of contribute to the rest of the field by putting this study out there? So I think one contribution might be the methods that I that I used here in order to study the influence of this paper, because I think it would be fascinating to do other such studies. 
mm-hmm. math education. This is a this is a type of research that might be very interesting to the field, and in particular to us understanding how we're building on the work of others mm-hmm. um, and the development of our field. So I, I think in that sense, it, it would be interesting to maybe see more of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, with respect to Benny, uh, I feel like, at least for me, now maybe other people have made these connections uh, before, although I didn't really see it in, in the published um, literature. But for me, what was striking was the connection between the research methodology that Erwinger was using in order to carry out his study and the very, the behaviors curriculum that he was studying um, were, were in direct conflict. So I, I guess I saw this parallelism between Erwinger's basically saying quantitative positivistic research won't answer the kinds of questions we need to ask. We need a different kind of methodology, qualitative research is something that would let us answer the kinds of questions we need to ask. And so he's putting out this new this new way of studying. And at the very same time, what he's studying is a situation where these same sorts of paradigms are dictating the curriculum that Benny's using. And that curriculum is not looking closely at the way Benny's thinking, but instead just looking at his behavior. And so there's this interesting parallelism that, that there's the same solution. The solution for studying Benny is the same thing as the solution for Benny's own mathematical learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like he's he's pointing out, you know, Benny is getting these answers and going through this behaviorist curriculum, but he's not really understanding the mathematics that are important to understand. And so it's kind of this, if you read between the lines, which I think is what you're kind of revealing with your study, reading between the lines, he's also saying to the field of mathematics education research, if you just do this, if you quantify everything, you get your answers, but you're not really understanding the important ideas that we need to be understanding and maybe qualitative research can help to fill in those gaps. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's really interesting, and it's great to be revisiting Benny because he is just an interesting character. You know, he's one of these characters that's just kind of, you know, in our field, and it's it's good to revisit him, see how he's being used, so I really appreciate your work. I do, though, have a final question before I let you go, (laughs) and this is the kind of fun question um, that's from my friend Aaron Brackenecki, but I've been stealing it from him and using it in all my podcasts. I'll basically ask you to imagine an alternate universe where you are not in mathematics education. What do you see yourself doing? Well, two possibilities come to mind. Um, in one of these universes, I, I definitely would see myself as a lawyer. Hmm. Um, I, uh, it seems like you're, you're willing to sift through the past legal precedents. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So that, that, um, that aspect of, of lawyering, the research involved, um, and looking... Looking through the logical uh, arguments to to find uh, particular ways of making your case that seems really interesting to me. And then just just the notion of getting paid to argue is really appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> um, but I do have a really difficult time envisioning myself in any universe not being involved in teaching. And so, for me, the other way to ask <laughs> to ask that question is: if I wasn't teaching mathematics, what would I be teaching? Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing I can imagine that really uh, that I feel like I could could teach with a similar kind of passion would would actually be religion. Um, that's just something that, that for me is a huge part of my life. And I could imagine getting as excited about um, you know teaching religion classes as like maybe I could mathematics. But that's about it. I can't really imagine another content area where I might be able to have the same kind of passion. 
Right. So I don't know if, I'm not really trying to make the claim that I view mathematics and religion as on par, but um, I do have passions for them, I guess, in some ways. Right, so, yeah, yeah. I guess that says more about my view of mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Keith Latham from Brigham Young University. Keith, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Sam, it was a real pleasure to talk about this stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.